Have you thought about any, uh, any, any bit at all? Have you thought about why it is that Christ is setting us apart from the rest of the world? Uh, why it is that you and I as followers of Jesus, if you are one, uh, why it is that Christ wants you to be different from the rest of the world, why he wants you to say things differently, why he wants you to give differently, why he wants you to sacrifice differently, why he wants you to live for something greater for your, than, than yourself. Have you ever thought deeply upon that? Why is it that Christ wants me to be so different from the rest of the world? I mean, we, we spend most of our, of our life... Uh, we try to be like someone else. We try to become or we're becoming like someone else. We want to model. We, we've said it oftentimes since I've been here. We're, we're modeling our life after someone that we really admire. I want to be like my grandpa. I want to be like my mom. I want to be like the teacher I had. I want to be like this coach I had. I want to be like this guy I read through history books. I want to be like some. We're, we're, we're basing our decisions, our life, upon somebody that we admire, somebody that we look up to, somebody that we, we think lived a, a great life, one to be, uh, to be modeled after. And here Christ calls us to be his followers. Ask us to walk in his footprints. Walk and abide in him and act like he acted, serve like he served, show mercy and forgiveness like he showed and show is showing mercy. We are being transformed as a believer. It's called the process of sanctification. We're, we're being transformed into the likeness of Jesus, our Savior, and our leader, the one that we're following. And so our actions should represent that. Our words should represent that. We talked last week, our jokes should represent that. The, the words that come out of our mouth should represent the one that we're following. Who, who is it that's, that's, leading, that's leading us? I've told this story before, but I'm going to tell you it again. Uh, several years ago on a mission trip, um, we, um, we were serving up at some apartment ministries in Amarillo, Texas. And uh, we had been doing lots of training for our students so they'd be prepared for every moment of this little mission trip. Uh, preparing them with scripture memory, preparing them with what we're going to teach, preparing them with what to say when these things happen. When you go to the apartment and you knock on the door inviting kids to kids club and the door slams in your face, you know, what do you say? Or you knock on the door and, and the door opens and someone begins speaking to you but you don't speak the same language. What, how do you respond? I mean, we just trained them and trained them and trained them. We made, uh, we made them, uh, you know, be at a certain number of meetings. If, if they weren't at those meetings, they couldn't go on the, on the trip. And I remember thinking as a leader, I've done, I've done my part. I've done my job. I've trained these students so well for this trip. We're going to see fruit. We're going to see people one to Jesus. We're going to see people who see, uh, see Christ for who, who he is and salvation is going to be so excited and, and so hopeful for the trip. And then about midway through the trip, we're, we're about to, uh, we're preparing a meal and about to serve a meal for our little kids club thing. And I hear two students behind me talking. So I'm listening to them as we're doing things. And one student says to the other student, Hey, what are we supposed to be doing? Of course, now as the leader, I'm thinking, What do you mean? What are you supposed to, I've been giving you the instructions. What do you mean? Why do you even have this question? And the other student said, I'm waiting. I'm like, okay, at least he's going to know. He's going to tell him these are the things that we're supposed to be doing. Hey, what are we supposed to be doing? I'm waiting for the answer. Bro, I don't know. I don't know what we're supposed to be doing. So now I have two students who I've trained thoroughly that neither of them know what they're supposed to, supposed to be doing. So as a righteous, holy individual, I, I began to clench my fist and ready to pivot and 
tell these students everything they need to know about heaven and hell and prepare them for what's next in their life. And as I just was going to pivot and share with them the details of what they should be doing, the student who said, I have no clue or I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing said, I'll tell you what I do, I'll tell you what I do know. So then I stop. I just do what Matt does. Wherever he goes, I go. Whatever he tells me to do, I do. Wherever he does, and I think, oh my goodness, now I've failed miserably because now I've modeled them after me. Wait a minute, let me pivot and tell you guys, don't model your life after me. Find someone better. Let's talk about Jesus. Let's model our life after Jesus. So Christ gives us the what are we supposed to be doing. He gives us the words. He, he preaches it in a sermon on a mountainside. I connect with it right away when it's the Sermon on the Mount. I'm like, okay, I'm there. Let's go. Let's go on the mountain. Let's hear Jesus teach this. And so often we come to this passage about retaliation, about people who throw punches at us or insults at us or take things from us or ask us to go extra mile, and we respond culturally instead of like Christ. We respond like our grandparents, our great-grandparents told us to respond, or a coach told us to respond, or a teacher told us to respond, and not like Christ. I remember one of my high school football and baseball coaches um, would say often, it only takes one punch, son. Even if you're the smallest guy out here, it's that one punch that'll do it. So if you could use every bit you have, and that one punch will take care of the situation. All right, coach, I'm with you. The one punch, it better be It better be the best. It better be the best punch I have. Like Zach said, was telling us yesterday, it better be full of torque so that when I land that punch, it better be, it better uh, hit the mark and do the, the job that it's, supposed to, that it's supposed to do. Culturally, we, we shape our lives based on what people of this world tell us to do. They tell you where to give. They tell you where to go. They tell you what to um, do with your bank account. They tell you how to respond to insults. They tell you what's funny, what's not funny. They tell you what's righteous, what's not righteous. And yet we have the words of life. We have the words that have been passed down, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to give us the example of how we are supposed to act as those who follow Jesus. I mean, we live in a world of brokenness, where it seems as if sin is reigning, where we experience weighty things every day. You take information, Zach and, and Brian and I were talking about this, or Josh and uh, Kevin were talking about um, the weight of the, of the world and about how, um, how we just we get information so often as pastors, and we have to decide what is it we're going to do with this information. Do we hold on to it? In counseling, I talk a lot about do we put it in the backpack and put the backpack on and carry all this garbage or weight around with us? Or do we look to the truth? Do we look to our Savior who says, I'm removing that weight for you no longer to bear it. I'm taking that weight away from you. I mean, often in church we say Christ came to save us from our sins. But where does sin show up? Sin shows up in you. Sin shows up in me. Sin shows up in other humans. He came to save us from ourself. And the weight that we put on ourselves and the sin that we continue to, to walk in, Christ calls us to abide in Him, to be freed from sin, no longer to be slaves to it. And yet instead of abiding in Christ, we want to go back and abide in sin. And remain in that weight. Oh, Christ, thank you for lifting that weight off of me. 
Thank you for lifting that weight off of me. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to go throughout the week and I'm going to grab more of it. And I'm going to put more of it on me so that I can come back to you and say, Oh, Jesus, thank you for lifting that weight off of me. And Christ says, I'm going to set you apart. I want to give you a better life. I want heaven to be revealed on earth. I want to show you how to walk. I want to show you how to respond so that the weight of sin is no longer upon you. Don't pick it up and put it back on. Leave it where it is. So we get to this retaliation topic, how to respond to the insults that are thrown at us, how to respond to the way the world treats one another, even in the church, how we treat one another, and, and what do we do with it. So I want to read through these, talk just to briefly about this. Then I want us to end by seeing that Christ model his own words. Did Christ take these words of retali- about retaliation and did he put them into practice? Did he give us an example? Did he show us that it can be done? Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 says this, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. See, this is a saying from the old times. This is an ancient saying from long ago. But does this truth or does this saying still hold precedent today? I mean, how many people do you know that still act this way? Well, they did this to us, so I'm going to go do that to them. Do you like it? I mean, have you been in this argument before where you've turned and you said, you know what, they're punching my eye out or poking my eye out or taking my tooth out, so I'm going to do the same to them. Do you like it when I do this to you? Because this is what you're doing to me. You've had those conversations before. I know you. You're human. You've had those moments. This still, this saying, people still live by this today. And Christ is asking us, as the people that belong to him, the people that follow him, to live differently. To to be set apart as Christ has set us apart with his death, burial, and resurrection, with his blood setting us apart and making us holy, clothing us in righteousness, setting us apart. He asks us to be different. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist or take a stand against or take a firm stand against. Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic or your outer garment, let him have your cloak, your inner garment or undergarment as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So most of the time we look at this as kind of a a two-choice type thing. It's a fight-or-flight type thing. Uh, My sister and and my bride, Mandy, we were at the lake in East Texas where our family has a lake cabin. Um, I'm on the beach and up by the house, and uh, my sister and Mandy, my bride, are out on the end of the dock, uh, and, a, and a guy, an upstanding gentleman, I'm sure, c- comes up on his little jet ski, sea-do thing, you know, and he's showing off and doing spinny things and jumps, and I is cool, kind of, not really. And he comes to the end of the dock because he sees two very attractive ladies, my sister and my bride. And he comes in and, you know, kind of coast in there, right? And so now... What do you do? Come on, man. You know what you do. 
You grab every pool noodle you can and every life jack you can and fishing pole or whatever you can grab, hook, spear, whatever it is. And you go after the guy on the sea-doo. You have no idea. Is he going to share the gospel? Who cares? He's invading my territory. And so you yell from the top of your lungs, Can I help you? And everybody starts laughing. And I'm like, Why are you laughing? Why are y'all, why are y'all? Oh, family's laughing at me. Why are you laughing? I'm like, what are you going to do? I'm like, well, here's the thing I know. Here's the thing that I know, the truth that I know in this moment. I have the upper hand. Well, how do you know you have the upper hand? Because God is on my side. <laughs> it's pretty arrogant. Right, it's pretty arrogant. But we, we usually feel like we have two, two choices to make. We have the fight. I'm going to fight in this situation, or I'm going to run away from it. And most of the time we see in this when you read through this real quickly in your daily Bible reading, you think, oh, Jesus is telling us to flee from the situation, to run away from it. Don't fight. Don't push back. I don't think that's necessarily the case. When you fight when someone pushes you, or you run away when someone pushes you, really you're giving them the upper hand. You're allowing them to control the situation. You're allowing them to lord over you themselves. I'm going to push you. I'm going to slap you on your right cheek. I'm going to push you. I'm going to take your clothes from you. I'm going to push you. I'm going to grab and make you go an extra mile or go one mile. I'm going to make you do these things. Lording themselves over you. Trying to put themselves in a place of authority. In a place of position above you. And Christ says... As a follower of him, one of our key goals is to recognize who he is, to recognize his authority, to recognize his power, to recognize his righteousness. Where is Christ? Where is God? Where is Christ seated at this moment, at a place of authority? See, Christ is saying, don't take the moment, but step outside the moment. Look at it from an eternal perspective. If I am to fight in this position, or if I am to flee from this position, what, what happens in the moment? But if I'm to respond with an eternal mindset, like Christ responds always, who, who will get the glory? If one hits you on the right cheek, you turn the other cheek. Think for a moment in a predominantly don't use your left hand world that Jesus is in if I'm going to punch someone in the right cheek and I'm a right handed person the only way that I can punch them in their right cheek is to backhand them or slap them because it's the opposite here I'll demonstrate Reese come up here (laughs) you want to punch me you want me to punch you okay thanks right handed this is his left cheek. If I'm going to punch him, I'm going to punch him in his left cheek. But Jesus says, if they punch you in your right cheek or hit you in your right cheek, this is his right cheek. I'm going to have to backhand him. And I don't, I don't, I wouldn't do that to him. There's some others in our house I would, but not to Reese. It's a sign of authority. It's a sign of lording over, a sign of position. Who is it that backhands people in that, in that time? It's, it's, it's terrible to say these things, but here's, here's examples of who would be backhanding. Masters would backhand or slap their slaves. 
Husbands would backhand or slap their wives. Romans would backhand or slap the Jews. It's these people who are who think they're in authority, who think they're in a higher position. I'll show you who you are. Well, Christ says if they slap you on your right cheek, turn and give them the other one too. Well, what happens when you offer your left cheek in that society? What happens when you say, go ahead and hit this side too? You're putting yourself at an equal playing position. You're saying we're peers. We're on the same, we're on the same field. You, you want to belittle me. You want to say that you're higher than me, a greater position, but I see, I know where I am in Christ. I know how I've been adopted. I know I'm an heir. I know what's coming for me. I know the eternal things that are, 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 are awaiting me. I know who my Savior is. So you throw insults at me on this side, I'll turn and make you throw insults at me on this side, recognizing to you or showing to you we are the same. In us, there's nothing different. You have sin, I have sin. The blood of Jesus can cover both. And I'm not going to let you win this battle at all because I have an eternal perspective. And in this moment, I'm recognizing the power and the authority and the righteousness of Christ and Christ alone. I will not let you or anyone else lord yourself over me. What, what happens if you do respond? Oh, you punched me, you slapped me, I'm going to punch you back. Who's winning that battle? Who gets the glory in that moment? Sin. Sin gets the, the honor. Sin gets the glory in that moment. If you, run away from the, if you run away from the fight and you choose fight or flight and you run away from it, who gets the glory? Oh, look at that guy. The coward run away. Look at the coward. Uh, can't handle the insult. What, what, what's happening in this moment? Who gets the glory? Sin gets the glory. But you and I as believers, as followers of Jesus, we recognize the power, the authority, and the righteousness of Christ. We see where Christ is today. We read where he's going to be tomorrow. We understand where he's been. And with that all in mind, in that moment, we say we want Christ to get the glory and the honor for this. We want Christ to be the one that's reigning in this situation. You, know, you, you get insults all day. And it's not necessarily for your faith either. I mean, you're insulted often. How do you respond to those insults? Do you insult back? Do you let insult the, insult, the sin of insult win? Or do you respond like someone who's following, who's following Christ? Move on to the next example. He says, And if anyone would sue you to take your tunic or your outer garment, let him have your cloak as well, or your undergarment as well. It's not hard to imagine this. Don't think too long about it. We'll have to go back to the lust section. All right? So, so be careful. But outer garments, you're sued for it. Hey, will you owe us money? I'm going to sue you for your outer garment. Give the outer garment. You know what? In this case, I'm not going to let you in. I know who I am in Christ. You, maybe you're not even suing me for the right things. Maybe you're not even, uh, maybe you're making false accusations in this case. You want my outer, outer tunic or my outer garment? I'm going to give you my undergarment too. And then what happens? Well, nakedness is taboo in this culture. And you're walking around naked? Who, who's getting the shame in that? Everyone that sees you. Think back to the Old Testament when people see people naked. You all are shamed by it. So, so who's going to win this moment? The one trying to lord over you or the one who is lord over you? I mean, that's the, that's the thing when we're walking and abiding in Christ. We have to remind ourselves, who is it that is lord over my life? It's the reason why Christ said, deny self, take up cross and follow him. He's the only one worthy of doing those things for. When you allow pride and selfishness to rise up, you're saying that you can be Lord of your life. 
And if you would like to try and die for your own sins, you can try that. But we know scripturally you can't do it. So Christ, the only one worthy of dying for your sins, the only one worthy of removing sin from the whole world, he's the one that should lord over your life. Then he goes on to say, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. In this Roman culture where Rome is ruling over everyone and Jews are, are really slaves to the Romans in, in a sense, uh, the Roman soldiers could, by law, force you to carry their pack for them. But law, military law, stated they couldn't force you to carry the, the pack more than one mile. And so here's a soldier coming up and sees a bunch of people, and you know what, I'm tired of carrying my pack. So by law, I can force you to carry my pack for me. So I'm going to force you to carry my pack one mile. And as the mile approaches, you're beginning to think, okay, this is ridiculous. You know what, this, is, this just makes me mad. And I'm going to complain and gripe about this for the rest of my life, about that one moment when I, when I took the wrong path and I was on that road. And remember that? You remember when those soldiers forced us to carry that pack? And who's getting the honor and the fame for that moment? But think if you respond like Christ and he tells you to go an extra mile and the mile's approaching and you're thinking in your head, you know what, this is not right. It's, though it can be justified, it's not a just action. Uh, these people are the same as me as on the eternal spectrum. If their sin hasn't been covered by the blood of Jesus, they have no hope and will be separated from God for eternity. And so as I'm walking the extra mile, how can I use this moment? Or as I'm walking towards the end of the mile, how can I use this moment to glorify the one that is Lord of my life? And you take one step and you're at the end of the mile and the soldier says or the employer or the teacher or the coach or the spouse or whoever it is says, you know what, thanks. Or maybe they don't say thanks. They just start to grab their pack back from you and say, wait a minute. You know what? You're not Lord of my life. But I will tell you who is as we walk this next mile together. Who gets the honor and the glory and the fame for that moment? As you spend the next mile Though our world tells us not to do that, as you spend the next mile sharing the gospel, the good news, the pack that's weighting you down, let me tell you about the burden that can be lifted from you, the sin that can be removed from you forever. You get to share that as you're going the next mile. Who gets the fame? Who gets the glory for that? Not the soldier who's forcing you, or the boss, or the spouse, or the teacher, the coach, or the friend, or the relative but the one who is actually Lord of your life, Jesus. So as you walk this week and someone throws an insult at you, and maybe it's physical and you receive a punch, in that moment, ask yourself, who is Lord? Who is Lord of my life? As someone accuses you of things or wants to take things from you, uh, be it legal in a suing situation, who is Lord of your life? And the outcome of that situation, oh, okay, well, we've, we've come to the conclusion and we're gonna have to, you're going to have to give the outer garment. You know what? They think they're Lord of my life, but they're not. Christ is Lord of my life. And I want them, I want him to receive the glory and honor for this situation. And so I'll give everything I have, if that's what it takes, for him to, give, to get the glory for this situation. Someone forces you this week to do something that, that you know can be justified in our world, but is not just and you think for a moment, I'll show them. And at the end of this time, 
the length of this journey, when this time, this justified time ends, I'll show them and I'll prove to them what kind of person I am. Instead of thinking, who is Lord of my life? And if Christ is Lord of my life, at the end of this mile or this time or this journey or whatever the case may be, who is going to get the fame and the glory for the moment, for the way that you and I responded to the situation? I mean, the goal, the task of you today, tomorrow, the task that you had yesterday, was that Christ would be the one receiving glory for the moment. It's you and I as disciples. It's a mark or trait of discipleship or characteristic of discipleship recognizing the authority, the power, the righteousness of Christ and Christ alone. And if he has all power and all authority, he's the only one that should be lording something over your life. Turn to the end of Matthew. We'll see if Christ held up to his his own words. Turn to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, we're going to start there in verse 47. And I'm going to read through quite a bit of scripture because I want us to see Jesus, his words, his plea to us to be different, his plea to us to respond differently, wants to see him in action. Matthew 26, verse 47. And while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priest and the elders of the people. You remember Judas? The one that walked with him for three years? The one that saw him perform miracles? The one that saw him raise a friend from the dead? The one that saw him provide food and peace? The one that saw him point people to where worship should really go, Judas, with this crowd. Verse 48, Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man sees him. A kiss, right? An intimate moment. A moment of two people who know more than just, well, it's cloudy today but know a lot about one another, approaches Jesus, gave them a sign, take him, he's the one, he's the one that's, that's wrong. Verse 49 says this, And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And verse 50 says, And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. How do you respond when someone that you've been pouring into, investing into, giving your life for, betrays you? How do you respond? Are you, you, you want to greet me with a kiss? I'm going to greet you with a punch. You, you want to greet me with a hug? I want to greet you with a knife. You, you want to greet me with, with a handshake? I want to destroy your whole world. And that's what culture teaches us. Christ sets an example as one's belonging to God. An eternal perspective that is forever, right? In the heat of the moment, we think about the moment. And in the heat of this moment, Christ was thinking about the length of eternity. The weight of sin. The blood that needs to cover unrighteousness. The wrath of God. 
this moment is, is only a moment. It's not forever. Friend, do what you came to do. Call him friend. Jesus knows he's not a friend, right? He's a betrayer. But Christ seeing him for who he actually is, seeing this eternal perspective, putting things into uh, vision uh, that we, we always miss because we have this tunnel temporary vision. Friend, do what you came to do. And then they came up and they laid hands on him, on Jesus, and seized him. Verse 51, And behold, one of those who was with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Right? That's how we respond. Someone punches us. Someone takes our clothes. Someone uh, insults us. We usually insult them back. And then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Christ could have easily done more than cut off an ear. God could have provided twelve legions of angels to come and rescue Him from that moment. But His eternal perspective recognizing all that's, that's present in this moment and the moments of eternity. Christ puts that in perspective for us. Verse 53, And at that hour Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then all the disciples left him, and they fled. Continue on, Matthew 27, go to verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Throwing out an accusation, throwing out an, an insult, throwing out like, a, are, you being, are you really, is this really who you are? And Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many, th- how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Speak up for yourself. Defend yourself. Act, act like the rest of the world. Don't act like somebody strange. Christ, having this eternal perspective in mind, responds with somebody who has eternity in their hearts. Verse 22, And Pilate said to them, What shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And they all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. Even Pilate recognized that he wasn't a sinner. Even Pilate recognized that he shouldn't be dying for for what he's being accused of. Pilate recognized all that. And yet the crowd continued to cry out, Let him be crucified. Christ could have easily walked away. He could have fought back. He could have brought the angels. He could have fought back. He could have fled. He could have vanished like that. But instead he stayed in the midst to show them who is actually Lord. Verse 27, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. Do you see what happened? They, they took his tunic, stripped him down naked, they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they, they put it on his head 
you know, not to give him a place of authority, but to, to mock him, right? They put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before them, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Come on, Jesus, stand up for yourself. Fight in this moment. Show him that you really are king. And yet this suffering servant, sovereign savior that we have responds like somebody with an eternal perspective. Somebody that knows things. Somebody that knows more than just what's happening in this moment. And they spit on him. And they took the reed and they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Come on, Jesus, stand up. Punch back. Kick, scream, yell. Identify yourself. Tell him who you really are. Christ, as Lord, knows more. And as they went out, they found a man, Cyrene, named Simon, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. What would you do in this situation? You're a follower of Jesus. You've been following him for three years, and you look over, and there's a guy carrying a burden for somebody else. Do you cross your arms and say, man, that poor guy, having to carry that cross, carry that cross for somebody else? Or do you remember the words of Jesus? Somebody forces you to carry it, carry it even further. Don't just do the length of time that's specified or justified in this world, but go further than that. Verse 35, And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And they sat down and kept watch over there. And over his head they put this charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And the two robbers who were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left, and those who passed by, those who passed by derided him, waging their, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He can, can he not save himself? And he is the king of Israel. Let him come down and now from the cross, and we will believe in him. Verse 43, He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. I mean, this is, this is, our, this is our culture today. Telling us how to respond to every situation. Respond like this. They're yelling at Christ. Just respond like we respond. Christ says, I'm different. I'm here for a better, greater purpose. I'm here for a bigger, greater need than for myself to identify who I am. Verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. See, most of the time, when you're faced with insults and ridicule and false accusations and punches punches to the face and justifiable uh, forced labor, you're only concerned about yourself. Well, how does this make me look? How does this make me feel? How does this look to my family? How does this look to my friends? How does this look to the world? How am I going to look in this situation if I don't fight back? I can't let them spit on me. I can't let them divide my clothes up. 
I can't let them force me to do I've got to stand up for myself. And yet the one we follow says, recognize his power. Recognize his authority. If Christ is Lord of your life, you are not. It's not about you. It's about your Lord. So you respond differently. Verse 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Verse 6, He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. And there you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said greetings. And they came up and looked and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there you will they will see me. Verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, maybe because of their doubts, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I mean, Christ's final words, right? Do not forget who has all authority in heaven, in heaven and on earth. I mean, the center of the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 6.10. God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The center of the Sermon on the Mount. So the center of your life, in moments when you feel like you need to retaliate, like the world retaliates, in moments that you feel like you need to respond like the world teaches you to respond, you remember who is Lord of your life. And if Christ is Lord of your life, then you say, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, teach me how to respond as you would respond. Let me have words from you. Let me have actions that represent you and not myself, because you are Lord of my life. Let's pray. God, thank you for your holiness. Thank you for your sovereignty. Thank you for being a just and righteous God who deals righteously with our sin. God, thank you that there is a way to no longer be separated from you. God, that there is a way, there is a truth, and there is life in Jesus and Jesus alone. God, thank you that he has been given all authority in heaven where he's seated now and on earth where we represent his reigning kingship. God, help us as people who belong to you to respond like you, like you are Lord of our life. God, and as Satan tries to distract and Satan tries to tempt us to no longer abide in you, God, help us to remain and persevere in you. God, we know that you are worthy of all glory and honor. We thank you for that. 
Help us to be willing this morning to respond in a way to you that brings you fame, that brings you glory, that brings you honor. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.